Fashion and beauty are serious business. On this podcast, we will hear from amazing creative entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore their unique success stories, learn from experts, and hear about their journeys. Steve Jobs famously said that, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So let's get crazy. I'm your host, Ann Zuckerman, and this is the Just Wanted to Ask podcast. Ladies, have you ever had one of those uncomfortable headlight moments? Don't you want to be heard without distraction? Bezzy broad discs are your solution. Go to justwantedtoask.com and look for Bezzy broad discs. Hello, everyone. I'm thrilled today to be with Kevin O'Connor. Kevin is the author of Two Floors Above Grief. He enjoys chronicling the stories of families and friends through tracing genealogical histories and writing. His prior writing includes a dissertation, personal letters, articles, anthologies, and presentations delivered at conferences, seminars, and webinars. He brings people together personally and professionally, collaborating with friends and relatives. He plans family and class reunions. He sings and performs in theaters and is active in with Smart Ride, a bicycling group that rides annually from Miami to Key West, raising funds for HIV awareness and treatment and education. Kevin was an elementary teacher, principal, professor, and curriculum coordinator in California, Illinois, and Florida from 1973 to 2020. He he authored content and provided training in areas including support for substantive teachers, LGBTQ advocacy, and sexual health family life. Kevin resides in Fort Lauderdale with his husband, Leon. Their family includes five sons and seven granddaughters. He's also published a book, Two Floors Above Grief. And for those of you who are seeing this, I'm holding up a copy of the book. It is absolutely wonderful. Welcome, Kevin, to the podcast. Well, thanks for that introduction. I really appreciate the the time you took to... to, uh review my uh 73 years of life there so thanks thanks a lot thank you very much thank you well as i said i'm i'm absolutely thrilled to have you here um so two floors above grief is a an absolutely beautiful memoir about your family and um how you all live together tell us about the beginning um about how you and your family ended in up in Elgin, Illinois, and mm-hmm. about your uncle and your father and their business. Sure. Well, that's pretty much how I, I was born in 1950. Um, my uncle started the business in 1930. And as I explained in the book, um, he this was coming out of the depression or in the midst of it. And he and his, his about to be wife, my, my aunt and later to be my godmother, um, 
he wanted to have his own business and he wanted to be an undertaker, a funeral director for a, a craft for which he had been trained. And yet there wasn't an opportunity for him to have his own place of business in the Hammond Gary area where he had been raised and where his wife was from. So um, he decided he was going to venture out. And in the midst of all the economic uh, travails of, of those times, he was able to find uh, and locate a place where uh, an undertaker was needed, especially an undertaker that at that time they were looking for, the town was looking for a uh, a Roman Catholic undertaker because the people that had done those kind of services both had passed away themselves. So he got this lead about there'd be an opportunity for him. And he'd never at that time, this is before the interstate, as I explained in the book a little bit, before interstates, before the way we get around now, he decided to venture to this place about two hours from his home in Hammond, a town called Elgin, Illinois. And my aunt and uncle were married uh, in 1930 in June. And about a week, within a week, they were on their way uh, with um, my great-grandparents in tow and my father, who was in high school, and my aunt, who was in elementary school. And they drove to this town that, other than my uncle Lawrence, had, had taken a peek at the town and found a potential uh, house that he could rent and convert but nobody else had ever seen the town before. So I, I, um, I start the book with that, even though I start in a time period before I was born, but it certainly feeds into my own memoir because if, if they hadn't done that, my father wouldn't have met my mother <laughs> and I wouldn't be here. So you, you could, you, you can look at it that way. So it, and I also, um, as I, the book's been published about eight months now, and as I get more involved with talking to people about it, uh, the book is becoming um, a topic of interest for people that are just entering the funeral directing profession now. Uh, so 90 years later, after my uncle started, the they, people that I've talked to are finding lessons in there that might be applicable to the kids kids that are just starting out you know how do you start a new business how do you go to a new town how do you develop the relationships that are so vital to a profession such as uh, the undertaking funeral director uh business and how do you do that in such a way that 90 years later um the business is still there and the family name is still there the uh the, the business has been sold but Whoever bought, when people buy the business, there's been about three owners since my parents sold in 84. But uh, when people buy the business, they keep the O'Connor name there. They put a hyphen in there with that, whatever their own name is. Right now it's called Leets O'Connor. So, and it has been for the last 20, 30 years. But the, um, so he, he created, you know, in, in his youth, in his 20s, and with the support of his, his bride, his wife, they created this, and I think that's exciting when I look back, not only from my own family's perspective, but for people now that are starting a business or, or they don't use the word can't in their vocabulary, they use the word can. And I, I think that is uh, an important aspect of not only my family heritage, but many families' heritages. What is it in our backgrounds that took those people 
uh, to make a trip from Europe or whatever country they're coming from, or to make a trip uh, like my uncle did from northern Indiana to northern Illinois, which, uh, you know, was 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 quite a trip uh, then with limited car transportation and not the highways we know now. So it wasn't going over the ocean. But on the other hand, uh, I think and when, when you look at historically coming out of the Depression and in the midst of the Depression, what did people like my uncle, they use that word can. They said, I can do this. I'm going to do that. And so I think that is how I start the book and, and how it lays out a lot of the things that happen in the chapters that, that are to come after that. So even though I, even though I say in the book, um, I don't treat the, a lot of memoirs are treated very sequentially and they go from a beginning to an end. And I decided from the outset when I was um, gathering the information for it, that this was more a book that would be thematically based and based on the themes that evolved from my family over the years. And yes, I do make a lot of historical sequential references, but I try to embed them in into the theme that's going on in, in any particular chapter. So. But that truly made it charming. Um, the part of that beginning, which just captivated me was that Lawrence gets married and announces to his wife that he's now purchased a business 50 miles away. Mm -hmm. And that's where they're going after their wedding mm -hmm. with his parents and his brother and sister. Yep. Which yep. I can't imagine being at the getting married really quickly. Well, soon after that announcement. And then finding out that I'm moving with the entire family 50 miles away. So that just, that just got me. Well, and I think that way, and one of the uh, objectives I had for writing the book um, and part of the audience I had in my head was, uh, was the audience was the, the offspring of the house, which now I just met with one of the fourth generation last week. He's in his 20s, but he's one of 51 fourth generation people that come from the marriages of my aunt and uncle and my mom and dad. But when, so one, and when I was conceiving of this audience and who I'm going to write this for the family and one of the, the cousin I spoke to the most said she wanted to learn more about her grandmother, Mildred, that's in the book. And because a lot of the kids didn't get to know her because she died in the, uh, 1971. I knew her very well. And so when I was putting the story together and reading my aunt's letters that she had written to me and her story, I really had to think, here's, here's a woman that, yes, she was, she deferred to her husband, I think, as probably a lot of wives would have done in the 1930s. But the strength that she has to say that to go along with them, and best of my knowledge, other than what I tried to put in that uh, fictionalized dialogue between the two of them. Yeah, I think she probably pushed back a little bit. But I think the other on the other hand, she chose this man to marry. This is what he wanted. They were going to do this together. And so, I mean, I talked about my uncle earlier, you know, deciding to move to this town. But then <laughs> she came without even knowing what the house was going to look like or what was going to happen. And not only was she a new bride, but 
she was moving in and, and moving with another moving in or with another generation is not uncommon. But here she was a new bride. And then when my uncle sprung it on her that, well, to really help out our family, my two younger siblings are going to come with us. And so she was not only did she not only was she a bride right away, she was an instant daughter-in-law, a residential daughter-in-law, and she was a, um, a surrogate mother herself. I mean, and and an older sister, she was more than a sister-in-law. She was raising, helping raise um, her, her 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 nephew and her her niece. Who was helping to raise them. So I, I give her a lot of credit and and uh, being um for being a trailblazer and being the woman that she was. And I think that's part of when I'm getting these uh, contacts that, hey, what kind of lessons do you have in the book? Well, I think that's another one, just that uh, there, there was no can't in her language either. This is what I'm doing. This is what I can do. This is what I will do. We're going to, we're going to, uh, and then she went on to create her own family. But I mean, I think that that's another lesson too. And, and it's, I like, the idea that you know tying together what's happening in the 1930s and the kind of decisions they made as newlyweds and i think i even i think i put a reference in the book you know to kids that are getting married now what are you doing in your first house what are you uh, who's helping you or, or what kind of things are happening in your first month two months three months five months a year two years of marriage and what's similar to her story that might be similar to yours. So um, that that's, that that evolved as I wrote the book, that there are these lessons in here, too. Of her story is that she did actually contribute to the business mm-hmm. in the background, but she really did contribute. Oh, so yeah. at one point in the book, you say that she was listening to the radio to hear about what was happening in town and who had passed away. Mm-hmm. So she was actually also very much in the background, but also in the foreground. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she would and she and her, there was uh, five, six other four, five other funeral homes in town. And so um, in that kind of business, there's at least what I was used to. It was sort of a very subtle competition, a very respectful competition. Uh, other than your ads that you put here and there, there, I don't recall m- my uncle or my father's interactions with the other under- undertakers as being adversarial. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, one of my aunts, what she did when she listened to the uh, at the local radio station every noon, she kept a little list of which what what families were going to the other funeral homes, and she helped to note the patterns. And they being a new business in town. And, you know, with their idea being that their first um, audience, their first clients, their first outreach was going to go to the Catholic parishes in town. She wanted to determine, well, the Catholic families, are they going to other places or what can we do to, to change? So, yes, she was instrumental in, in making that. And when the business grew so much in the first 10 years, I got to believe <laughs> Even though in those 10 years she she gave birth to three children, I got to believe that she was pretty instrumental in helping that business grow to the point where they had to find a new location. So, um, yeah, she 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 was a special lady. 
So speaking of that new location, uh, tell us how the the house that you moved to actually became part of the story. Well, and I, well, that was the only, I didn't know the, the, the first location they went to. I, I know where it is. I, I can drive by it when I go back to my hometown. The house is still there. But um, this house, my uncle, by after nine or 10, eight or nine years in the business, the business had grown. It was, they were, their business was big enough that it was outgrowing the rooms they had to have wakes and to do preparation and to meet with families. In addition, um, my aunt and uncle now had three daughters who were taking up their own uh, amount of space. And now they had, um, and my dad was finishing high school. Well, he, he's already finished high school by then, but he got bigger and so did my aunt. And so the space was getting smaller. So my uncle sent out and went on a search to find this house. El, the town of Elgin was only about 40 or 50,000 people at the time. So he got wind of this house for sale, which became the house that's pictured on the front uh, of the book and uh, the place where the business is still existing to this day. And that house had, had was built in the 1800s, 1886. It was uh, formally moved into. But there's a lot of history about the house in, in, in the town of Elgin and historical journals. And it had gone through its own changes because of the, the, the economic times of the 20s and the 30s and had fallen into disrepair. And uh, even though in 1938, it was only about 50 years old, the house was suffering already. And so he and it was sitting empty and sort of probably had a gothic look to it and empty. So he proposed to buy the house and then had to go through various zoning things because uh, the town at the time thought there'd be too much traffic. They had you know, the same kind of things that happen now when new businesses come. So what he, he jumped, as I explained in the book, he got through all those hurdles and then he was able to buy the house. And then by that time, uh, 1938, 39 is when my parents were embarking on their own marriage and uh, and had tried to uh, start their own funeral home in a nearby town. It didn't work out. And so at that point, my uncle said, let's there's room enough here for two families. So that's when he welcomed my father in as as part of the business. But as I say in the book and as in, in my own experience, the house itself had a character. It had its own history. It had its own roots. It had its own um series of owners and that are rooted in oh some of the history of the areas uh, in the suburbs of chicago where the dairy industry was real big there's a barn on the property that my uncle bought that had been a barn that um, helped to uh, provide the cows and that became part of the dairy industry and uh borden and pasteurized milk and so that's part of the story too and uh, another part, one of the owners of the house was uh, owned a piano company called Seabold Pianos. And uh, 10 years ago, my, my niece was looking for a used piano. And what does she find? She finds a Seabold piano in a warehouse in Chicago and which direct, you know, connected right back to the house. So we sat, we kept seeing these things over the years of the character of the house and the history what my dad and uncle did and my aunt, mom and my aunt did to to uh, refurbish the house and keep it going and keep it presentable and 
keep it running as a business. So as you pointed out, and as other people have either verbally or in some of the reviews I'm getting, the house itself is a character. And, and that was really what I wanted to portray in the story to how we wouldn't have become the families we did, um, except for the architecture and the design of the house. And that's why our two families became so blended and why my three cousins and my two brothers and myself really were treated as brothers and sisters. Um, and so, but that's because in order for us to live together, we had for a while, we shared bathrooms for a while. We, uh, for in order for me to get to my third floor apartment where I lived with my family, I had to walk through the second floor apartment uh, above the funeral home and probably stop and chat with a cousin or see my aunt in the kitchen or talk to my uncle Lawrence or hear his vocalizing as he was practicing for some of his church or uh, uh, musical performances. You know, so it was all, we were all very intertwined. We changed, we, ex we shared record albums, we shared TVs. We, even though we had our own separate kitchens and living rooms, we were very much a part of each other's lives. And I realized that in some family situations, that might not have worked out uh, to be that close. But in this situation, and that part of what I try to bring out in the book, and I think I do it pretty well, is just the uh, the idea of of the strength of our relationships and how those relationships have lasted till the point where in New York City last week for part of the book tour, I was able to sit with one of those fourth generation kids, uh, now 26, our connections have stayed strong. And that the house itself gave us the, our family character. So. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the book was when uh, you were in bed and your uncle yells, uh, Kevin Carey, I hear a light bulb crying. It wants <laughs> to be turned off. It says, we need to save electricity. I just love that. Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, and we were kids. We didn't always turn the lights off, you know, like we were supposed to. But I always, as I, as I go through those times when he used to call up to us, I used to think he might not, I've thought later, well, he knew the light was on. He must've been upstairs. Why didn't he just turn the Myself, you know, why? Why did he wait to go downstairs to subtly and uh, supportingly, you know, reprimand us? Uh, you know, to say, "Hey, it's our responsibility to turn that off." And I'm paying the electric bill here. I'm trying to keep. And so you tuned right in to our responsibility that if we turn that light off, it was going to help him too. So, and and the family as a whole. Well, thanks. You, I have to say, you're the you're the first one. I've had quite a few interviews and lots of interchanges. You're the first one that brought out that line, and I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, that I just love that. That just stopped me. That was a mic drop moment for me in the book. Um, so one of the other things you mentioned early on is that originally, um, before at the time when your uh, father and uncle actually ran the funeral home, uh, people used to have funerals in their houses. And that they, the 
the undertakers were actually also cabinet makers because they made the coffins, which I did not realize. Of mm-hmm. course, that business has totally changed. Right. But um, in your family, your father was very adept at cha- uh, doing construction yeah, within the house mm-hmm. and moving furniture and doing some other things. So that kind of traditionally carried forward. Yeah, in a different kind of way. It's funny you. It's interesting, and I appreciate you putting it in that perspective. On because now it's making me think. You know, I'm thinking, gee, if Dad had been born 50 years sooner, <laughs> he he might have he might have been that undertaker who also was a furniture maker. You know, um, and yet you know he didn't he didn't do that in, in his role as funeral director undertaker. He didn't make. He didn't make caskets, but um, he certainly was very adept at creating furniture, creating pieces, uh, had a, a very designer mind and, um, and 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 used those skills in addition to, to what he was use, using his skills as an undertaker. But he was and that that whole thing of him being um, very adept with his hands transferred to my younger brother, my younger brother. Um, uh, became uh, a contractor, became a builder, became uh, when well, I'm thinking of one time when I when we wanted to give a gift to my older brother because he got a new stereo system. My brother Carrie built built the whole shelving system for him. You know, and and Carrie now he builds. No, he's pretty much retired now, but he'll contract a whole house. <laughs> uh, so, but I have to believe that that comes from just watching my dad and being with my dad and having the tools in our house and dad being no stranger to a a toolbox or picking up a a saw or saying, I can make that. Or living in our apartment where we were surrounded by bookshelves and chairs that he had, bookshelves he had made or chairs that he had refinished or the, our, our apartment was full of uh, uh, woodwork and original wainscoting on the wall, and he would strip that down and put new stains on it. And it was it was never it was just the kind of environment we grew up in. So, to, yes, he he, um, he I guess he adapted it or the, those kind of skills that the undertakers of generations before him might have been using in other ways. So, yeah. One of the other parts of the book is you emphasize how important community was to both of your families, that that was emphasized from the time that you were very young, that you were you, uh, your parents and also your aunt and uncle were very busy socially, but they were also very active in the community in a Mm -hmm. lot of different ways. So how was that? What was that like growing up? Because People usually stigmatize funerals, funeral homes and funeral directors, and yet all of the kids were part of the community. How, how was that for you growing up? Well, thanks for that question. I, I, um, well, for me, and I, can, I can, and I can make the assumption that it was similar for my, my cousins and my brothers, but I'll just speak for myself. For me, I was never given a message that um, you can't have friends over or don't don't get involved in this or 
gee, we have to keep a different, we have to keep a sort of a, a reserved type of um, feel because we're an undertaking family. We're a funeral director's family. No, I think on the other hand, it was be involved, get out and do the things you want to do in school with your school activities. And yet we, and yet I had this model of all four of them, the four being my aunt and uncle, mom and dad, uh, of being in, involved themselves, whether it was through church activities or whether it was uh, fundraising activities. They were both mom and dad were very active in the March of Dimes in the 1950s. And to know even as, so I'm talking about pre-vaccine. So I was um, four or five years old. They were the one, they were helping in like a lot of people did in the communities was to help to find um, something that would help polio, help find a vaccine. So the March of Dimes was something they were very involved in. And, and I remember, I can still remember the the collections or the dimes in the house and going door to door and, and then maybe going along with them to, to collect from friends or people they didn't know. But they weren't, at that time, they weren't going as the owners of a funeral home. They were going as parents of children and they were going as people uh, who wanted to help other children. So, and I think I, I bring out in the book too, when they got involved in the community, you know, it wasn't necessarily to say, uh, yeah, to say, I'm, Hey, I'm the undertaker. I'm one of the undertakers in town. You come to us. No, they came to be involved knowing that probably by their service, a family may be more inclined to come to them. But when they were doing these things, whether it was what I just talked about with March of Dimes or being in a community play or singing in a chorus or um, helping decorate downtown Christmas decorations or at the church, it wasn't it wasn't just be, it was because they wanted to do it. They wanted to help. And I think that was something that was instilled in us uh, as kids. But <laughs> to take that a step further, I also talk about. Even as kids, we were ambassadors of the funeral home. And since we all bore the name, um, it was never spoken up, spoken in a um, threatening way, like you got to be careful or be careful about your actions. But it, it was understood <laughs> that when we were out and about, you know, uh, riding our bike or playing in a park or I can remember, you know, I got caught one time vandalizing somebody's Christmas lights and take uh, screwing the uh, in the old days when we had those big uh, light bulbs and it was a customer on my paper route and I was with a friend John and we got it in our minds as 11 year olds that it wouldn't be fun to take those lights and uh, and take them out of the sockets well um it wasn't maybe to do my paper route and to finish it and to get home is probably a 20 minute trip. As soon as I walked into the door, Mrs. Wilson had contacted my parents to let them know she knew it was a kid's trick and she saw us do it. <laughs> but again, that was instilled. You realize Kev, that your name is O'Connor. And even though she was very nice about calling and we went right back away, went, went back right away within 15 minutes to put the bulbs back. But the idea that when we did something, when we had a misstep, we took care of it and that we had to, we were representing not only uh, myself as Kevin, but we were representing the family name. 
So that was something that was instilled in us uh, from a very young age that uh, uh, the name has its, uh, we can, we can create consequences or we can create um, things that are non-consequential things that will support uh, the family. And I'd like to say that most of it was the other way. There weren't a whole lot of stealing light bulb incidents, but, um, but it, we knew from the outset all the time that um who we represented and how important that was and how important the family was and the business was to the community. Yeah. And what is your earliest recollection of what your family business actually was? Mm. Wow. Now that's a question. I probably, I'm probably buried in between lines. I'd have to say my earliest recollection probably was when I was five years old, my mom's niece, my cousin, uh, December of 55, she was killed in an auto accident. And she lived for a couple of days. Um, I mean, uh, we didn't have the kind of care for accident victims that we do now. But anyway, but, but she didn't make it. But I know I remember my mom and dad going up to the hospital and then knowing that that she was going to die and then dying and then the funeral in the wake being in our house. And at the time, a lot of family were there, of course. So um, I, what my, so my recollection as a five-year-old was people not only visiting the wake in the funeral home, but coming up to the second and third floors to take a break, to get a cup of coffee, to have something to eat, and then go back downstairs. And me being um, probably there intermittently, but that was my first that's what I really remember having making a connection with what it was my family did. I'm sure even prior to age five that I had seen I had seen a body in a casket before or that I had an awareness that my dad worked in the basement. But it wasn't until Mary Lou died that I, I made the connection between dying, somebody in our family dying, and what it was that dad and Uncle Lawrence did. So I guess that would be my earliest where I made the connection was around age five. Yeah. Five. The other um, things that you say in the book uh, is you speak about the journey, um, which was also beautiful. And part of that is the journey of your older relatives um, within the book as well uh, when they pass on. But you speak about it as a journey, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was really beautiful. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if I came. Some people have asked me um, through different forms. Hey, since I was raised in a funeral home, does that do, do I think grief is any easier for me than it would be if I hadn't been raised in a funeral home? That's not an easy question to answer because I've never known any different. You know, I never knew any different. But I have to say that um, the idea that I, having experienced grief at a personal level, as well as watching the grief and observing the grief of the clients, I, I don't feel I'm, it's any easier for me to experience it than it would be if I hadn't been raised in a funeral home. And I, I came up, or I, I'm not the first one to talk about being on a journey, but I... I um, for my own self, 
I, I do think it's a journey. I think of, um, there was a movie out about five or six years ago called, uh, I want to call it jazz. Uh, ooh, it was about a, it was about a jazz performer who, uh, um, movie wasn't named jazz. It'll come to me anyway. Jamie Foxx was it was his voice, and it was a, it was the idea that uh, he was a jazz performer. He had just gotten a contract to play the piano, and he falls in a manhole and dies. And the next thing you see is him standing on a uh, um, uh, not an escalator. It's more like a a belt, like you have at the airports where you stand on the the uh, belt that takes you along. This one's going up and there's a big aura at the top and he's starting to head up and he said, Hey, what am I doing on this thing? What's going on? What's going on? And everybody's face forward, just going up. And I, I think of that as a journey. And I, I think we're all on that escalator. We're all there. And even though, if I remember correctly, all I saw was the, the backs of their heads, I saw different sizes of people. You know, uh, and I know somewhere out there we all have a number but none of us know the number and and but when we get on that escalator we're on a journey we're just on the next journey and so i i think it becomes for me a little less uh fearful a little less um unusual because it's something that we all have in common whether it be grief whether it be the concept of loss uh whether it's a journey, uh, we talk about it that way. It's something we we don't have a whole lot of control over, over little control, and it's a it's a journey that we're all on. So I think that help helps for me to just to uh, accept the idea of grief, accept the idea of passing, accept the idea that living two floors above the grief. We saw any number of families experience this. And we were removed from it because we weren't experiencing it ourselves directly. Uh, but as a kid growing up, people coming in and out of the house, I would I make a reference. Um, none of my friends had 12,000 people in their house in any given year. <laughs> but as I estimated the numbers of people that probably came in and out of the funeral home in a given year, it could have been 12, 000, around 12,000 people. and. Um, but so I was a part of that from an observational standpoint, knowing our our home was a place for people to come to our place it, 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 to visit, to, to, for, to use a new term, to hang out, to hang. Uh, but it was a place of relief, a place, a place for comfort, a place to be at. And so I think that that it, that's part of the journey. It's part of my experience. It's part of uh just the idea that I lived above that, but it's very much a part of my life too. Whether it's uh, whether it's the grief of a, a a death, or the grief of an estrangement, or the grief of a loss of a friend, and uh, or the grief of uh, of becoming older, like you and I are, and knowing that sometimes we lose track of people, or I lose track of people, or um, people come and go in my life. Not. If not because they're we're mad or angry, it's just that life takes takes on a meaning, and we it's not easy to keep up with everybody that comes into our life. And there's a little bit of we're all on a journey, I guess. I think forget what your comment was to start, but I rambled on here a little bit. 
That's okay. So well said, though. And that getting back to the fact that this book is a memoir, it certainly um, it was wonderful being able to meet the members of your family and those special moments, and that um, you were able to actually capture their their personalities and those special times in such a special way. Um, so I, tr- I loved the book. I truly loved it. Well, I thanks. It was, thanks. I, I, it was beautiful. Well, I think and, what you, um, go ahead. Oh, and I was sad when I read the end, <laughs> when I got to the end. So what's, what saddened you at the end? Well, it was beautiful, but you speak about the passing of different members of your family. Oh, that part. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was sad. Um, it was also interesting reading about the business part of it because I'm a business person. But um, the book was really beautiful. It truly, truly was. So um, well, thanks. I'm so happy to have read it. Well, great. And I, uh, part of what I was gifted to put the book together, as I mentioned in the book, was the letters that had been written to me by my aunt, by my uncle, my father, uh, my mother. Um, I have 700 pages of letters written mostly from 60, you know, the late 60s to the mid 70s when I was in college. And the idea that that's we wrote letters in. we didn't do texting. We didn't do emails. We didn't use the phone a lot because it was too expensive to make a long distance call. So it, and then the idea that people will say to me, we wrote letters too, but we didn't save any of them. What made your family save them? I said, well, I don't know what made them save them. I saved a fair share myself, but um, I'm blessed. And that when I was typing those letters into the manuscript of the book and reading the original letters and typing my family's words with my own hands, I felt like I was really taking, I was, I was almost a them when my dad was writing and telling a story or my mom or my aunt or my uncle or whatever. And I was then having to type it into a word processor. I thought, ah, I'm actually, this is very authentic. I'm actually typing what they wrote and what they said. And I think you said you appreciated knowing the characters. I'd like to think that it's having used their own words in the book that helps give them the character development that you were able to to read through. So, Well, it was beautiful. So tell our listeners where they can find you. Great. Thanks. Appreciate that. Well, my website is uh, my name, Kevin O'Connor, author.com. Uh, they can find me there. And that's uh, we're just starting now to rework it a little bit. But the, live, the website's very live, Kevin O'Connor, author.com. They can reach me through my email address, which is koco7351 at gmail.com. The the book, there's a link to the book uh, purchase in the website, but they can also go to uh, the Amazon and just type in the title. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are used to doing that. Two Floors Above Grief, just type it in and they can get the, the book there. Um, I have a, um, a newsletter that I send out once a week and that uh, lists uh, all the events that um, come up. 
uh, that are coming that uh, that have happened that that keeps people aware of the book. The book is also uh, you can if you want to support your local bookstores, you can just go to any local bookstore and give them the title, and they have systems within their networks to to order the book. So I, I encourage people to do that. Um, also, right now we're working on ways to get the book into more libraries, but the most expedient ways to get the book uh, would be through Amazon or go to my website or go to Barnes and Noble online or at a store or go to a local bookstore and just ask for two floors above grief and they will order it for you. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, all of that information will be in the show notes. So definitely check out the show notes and you'll find um, all of those links. Thank you so very, very much for joining me today. I want to hear more. But okay. Thank well, thanks. You. Go to the, go to the website and uh, I, I've got you uh, with this week's issue. You will get a copy of my uh, newsletter. So you'll, you'll see that as well. Well, thank you so very much for joining me. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. Please follow us, submit a rating and review, and share us with your friends. This helps our message reach more listeners. For more information about my products, visit justwantedtoask.com. Thank you. Thank you.